Hello. Hello. Hello, Ellie's on the phone. Hey, Ellie. I thought I saw you, but for some reason you're also hidden now. But good to hear you. Good to hear you too. Sorry, I, I had to bail on the second half of the uh, call on Thursday. Oh, it's okay. For the NDPL. I mean, um, or at least I think it's fine. I can't speak for anyone else, but I think it's fine. What I miss in, in a brief 20 second sum, summary? Um, well, we were just sort of getting through some, I guess some just kind of logistical work, um, kind of getting our act together and moving forward with um, what kind of outreach we want to do. And so Jenna's interested in um, leaving a, like a, an NPL informative brochure and coffee shops and other locations around the state. And so we started talking about that and what, how we want to design it and trying to figure out how, how to move forward. Um, also, um, we talked about how um, next year will be the 100th anniversary of the uh, um, Mill and Elevator Association um, in North Dakota, and that we were thinking about just having some kind of 100th anniversary type of just messaging and theme over the next couple years to just kind of make people think about the relevance of the nonpartisan league to what we're living through right now. Um, you know, when we met and talked a little while ago, you know, Jenna was kind of wondering why is there not any good farm legislation? And um, Marvin Nelson was just explaining that the, the milk bill is probably the most interesting thing coming in that committee all session. And um, she's really interested in really organizing farmers to um, propose legislation that really works for them. And, you know, not the mega corporate farms, but um, the family farms. Right. And I was like, you know, the deadline for legislation for this session is passed. So we really already have to think about 2023. And so it would be 2021 and 2022 would be rallying folks, kind of embracing the 100th anniversary kind of thing. And just using that as a sort of messaging tool to mobilize farmers and stuff. And so I think it was just kind of like, we're trying to get our arms around those ideas mostly. Um, that, that's the part of the meeting that stands out to me as most important. So obviously there's a lot of really procedural Robert's Rules of Orders kind of, type of thing. And um, none of us are like the most perfect at it. So sometimes that, you know, one of us have to say, wait, 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 we didn't, we have to, make that emotion and vote on that and then we can move on. And so there was a bit of that. So, um, but yeah, I think I, hopefully that's clear enough and summarizes what we talked about. Yeah. I appreciate that, Ellie. Yeah. Um, Thursday evenings at 8 PM are one of the hardest times for me to make time for. So I was, I was there for the first hour and listening, but I, I basically couldn't, I was putting kids to bed, finishing up dinner. And, uh, and then I was so tired. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't listen anymore. I had to bail on you guys. There were a couple of times I wanted to talk. It was just, uh, just so crazy at my house at that time. But um, on the idea of uh, what we could, what's a potential way to help small farmers, um, I know that Dr. Shelley Lenz put in a bill through uh, Merrill Pepcorn to uh, 
create a carbon price, a carbon capture credit for farmers. And that's all I know about right now. Um, did you guys happen to discuss that as one of the possible bills that is in existence for this session that uh, could help small farmers um, plan for their future? We definitely acknowledged it. We didn't talk about it a ton, um, which doesn't mean we shouldn't have. We probably should have talked about it more. Um, so yeah, it was acknowledged. And I, I guess it does represent the kind of thinking that we're interested in embracing. And so um, I just, I see this as a very long-term project. That's why I'm, you know, talking about 2023 already. Um, and so I'm just eager to help. I think that, you know, I don't have agricultural experience and I didn't grow up here. And so, you know, I kind of see my role as helping the experts um, organize and channel their wisdom into good policy. And so um, I hope there'll be many more conversations to come about what these good bills could look like because I'm not the one who's capable of writing them, but I can take meeting minutes and help keep us on track towards goals and stuff like that. Yes. So well, yeah, I, I'm just excited to help. I, I was impressed with your facilitation skills as well, Ellie. You were keeping everyone in, on track through a discussion that sometimes got a little meandering. So good work with that. I wish I had more time um, at that part of the day to, to participate. Because um, one of the things I wanted to bring up was the idea that um, what the original NPL did that was so interesting to me was they educated um, as, as well as organized. So they didn't just get people together and said, are you angry at, at something and want to join us? But they actually educated about the, the things that uh, people needed to know to become um, active. So there was educate and then activate kind of idea, which I love to see us figure out how to embody that because I think that's a powerful model, especially in, in our current age of mis and disinformation uh, practices but we'll, we'll table that for now appreciate um let me know what happened in that last half of that meeting but uh, i want to welcome everyone to the no name podcast my name is ryan warner i'm joined uh, as always by dustin Gavrilo and dr ellie shockley and we have uh, james cambines as well hey jim how's it going hello all it's going well excellent this is the moment. I enjoyed where hearing um, Ellen's updates. Yeah, this is typically oh, where I... we have a, have a little bit of a check in to see how everyone's week has gone. Um, since it's been a couple of weeks since you joined us, Jim, I'll we'll kick it off with you. How's your week been? It's been a long week, and um, it was enjoyable to hear uh, uh, Ellie discussing um, what she's been talking about with different farmers and hearing uh, the farmers feeling uh, a lack of representation right now and and i think it is it is such a important topic to come back to since we've always been the ag state um since this modern state capital uh building was was has been in place in 1889 as a state and um we we've definitely uh strayed away from that representation lately so it's yeah. I look forward to hearing more about that, especially since my family farmed here the last 120 to 40 years. Yeah, I think we'll get a little bit into it, into um, a tangential subject for the egg community a little bit later, at least I, I will. Um, but yes, I think farming is a huge, important culturally and economically to North Dakotans. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens this century with with egg in this state and across the country, for that matter. 
Uh, Dustin, I see you've joined us. How's your week been? My week has been very busy and, and, uh, yeah, it started out with, uh, testifying on, on some of these, uh, uh, environmentally targeted, uh, bills at the ESG bill was the big one, uh, 2291, where some legislators would like to boycott the businesses that boycott our businesses. Basically it's, it's a arms race of sorts. Yes. And, um, you know, so my, my message to them was basically, uh, you know, sure they don't want to fund your projects that you like but why why would you not profit off of them if you're capitalists you know capitalism does not uh discriminate against people who discriminate against you you know that capitalism looks to seek the highest profits for your people uh and and we've got all these public uh funds that are invested in the markets which you know that that could be a debate in and of itself but as long as you are investing your uh, trust funds into the stock market, you want to get the highest return possible with the lowest risk. That's how it works. And so this idea that they have that, that somehow they will uh, eliminate companies that, that uh, uh, you know, target this, this ESG lifestyle, as I call it, <laughs> um, it, it, it will just, it will concentrate the state's investment portfolio and make it more prone to, you know, the ups and downs, you know, because it's not diversified, which is ironic because we're, there's another bill that would create an economic diversification fund. Uh, and it's like, okay, either, on the one hand, you want to concentrate your, your investments on the other one, you want to diversify them, you know, you guys got to pick a lane here someday. Uh, they can't, they're, they're having a struggle between populism and, and, you know, traditional, well, I, I'm not seeing a lot of traditional conservatism right now. I'm seeing a lot of uh, populism that is somewhere in between Trump populism and NPL populism. And then traditional, uh, I guess our other friends would call it neoliberal. Uh, where, where government's trying to pick winners and losers by investing in, in certain things that they like, whether that makes sense or not. So like, I'm not actually seeing a lot of conservative thinking on a lot of this stuff right now. And uh, so, you know, it, it, it's definitely an interesting situation and, and they are really, uh, they're really focused on, on going down this route. They're really focused on, on, uh, setting up the 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 legacy fund to, to essentially upwards of forty percent of it would would subsidize uh, clean coal carbon sequestration stuff and um, in one in one instance I saw a fairly prominent person talking about how well you know the NPL or they didn't mention the NPL but they they talked about, well, we've got a state bank and a state mill, and that's the sort of strong state leadership that we need to ensure that coal and oil are viable into the future. So basically, right. there's, there's a big 
uh, effort to utilize a legacy fund to make sure that coal and oil are the future. So yep. I guess I guess that's one way to, to define legacy. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't think that that was the intention of the voters. It certainly wasn't the intention of those of us who campaigned for the legacy fund in both 20, 2008 and 2010. Uh, the original intent that, that we saw was you build up a sovereign wealth fund big enough that you can use, utilize the uh, earnings to uh, uh, eliminate state income tax, maybe in-state tuition for North Dakota high school graduates. Um, maybe you do something about property tax. There's a few, there's a few uh, ideas out there right now about the, using it for property tax, but the balance isn't big enough to be sustainable to do that. Um, and so uh, you, you get all these factions that, that want to use it, and it, it appears like the critical mass uh, right now is to use it simply for corporate welfare. Yep. You said it, Dustin. <laughs> uh, I want to piggyback a little bit on, on what you're talking about, because there's a lot to unpack uh, with, with what they're what they're advocating for. So the ESG side that, that for those that don't know, it stands for environmentally, uh, environmental social governance. So uh, it's kind of a form of conscious capitalism where you're, you're uh, encouraged to, instead of complaining about things that are wrong to just not put your money into it and then let the market um, figure it out or, um, or let the market reward those that are doing things the right way. Um, if everyone, you know, theoretically knows what the right and wrong thing is to do. And so there are two things in that bill that are interesting. The first one is it directs the state investment board to consider uh, or potentially completely avoid <laughs> other uh, funds or um, sources of investment income that may um, be profiting off of ESG firms. Uh, so it gives them a leeway to you know, make their money support the things that they think North Dakota is all about, which would be oil and gas. The second thing, which is I think even worse, that does it, it had kind of lost in the shuffle so far, is that it gives the the state it, it enshrines uh, a right of the state governments to discriminate in its contracting process against companies that are ESG companies. So, if there's a a, a contract up between two um, well qualified vendors. The state can look at their ESG record and determine which uh, who gets the contract based on their ESG practices. So it basically lets the state uh, send all its, you know, its vendor money to, to, to other, other companies that are also kind of ignoring the ESG side of things, which, uh, you know, I don't think that's very cool if you're a North Dakota company that is into ESG uh, lifestyle. Um, now, basically, the, this law would let the state discriminate against your business. And that's not cool at all. Um, and so it's an interesting idea of how economics can drive social change or whether social change drives economics. Um, the other way that they're trying to bring this into the forefront is their Clean Sustainable Energy Authority, which, uh, you know, we, we complained a couple of weeks ago about the title. Obviously, it's neither clean nor sustainable. Uh, what they attempt to do in this bill, um, not only that, they're trying to get more than the, the starter money that, that was currently within the first draft of the bill. They're going <clears throat> they're going to try to get much more um, millions in there. And they're also trying to create a, 
basically an ongoing appropriation from the legacy fund into the clean sustainable energy authority fund and it appears to me that the the, the language was intentional this is um a way for them to claim that they're actually ESG friendly, so that we're an ESG friendly state, because they're going to say, hey, we got a clean, sustainable energy authority, and we're putting all the state money into these clean, sustainable energy um, initiatives. And, um, and they're, with the assumption that the, the fund managers around the world aren't going to like check check the, the receipts and say, hey, um, actually, <laughs> you're just pumping money into a dead, a dead, um, a dead industry. Uh, so it's kind of part of this um, pseudo fraud pseudo let's make North Dakota, let's greenwash North Dakota uh, so we can get our investors back. But it all goes back to just not enough money to um, make the world go around in North Dakota. And uh, you know, we'll, we'll get more into it, but there are about five bills that um, I think they're all um, designed to work uh, towards a larger push, which would be like Dustin said, to change the legacy fund into a corporate of sustainability fund <laughs> to keep oil and gas and coal going for another 10 years, perhaps at the rate that they're currently going. And um, the, the, I guess one of the scarier things within that 1452 bill, the Clean Sustainable Energy Authority bill, yeah, it, it does exactly what um, Dustin was kind of going there with. It gives the state um, through the uh, Industrial Commission the power to act as the purchaser of last resort, which is a legal term, which means that um, if there's a commodity out there that no one else will buy, um, the state can come in and buy it. So that gives the state, and, and, there, and as long as it um, furthers quote unquote clean energy or clean energy goals. So it, theoretically the state could um, buy Basin if Basin goes bankrupt because the Basin's um, coal mines went bankrupt, or it could buy a coal mine, or it could it could do this or that. It could create a, an oil and gas um, business and, and basically have a state-owned oil and gas business, which is not the worst idea. Um, it would be, you know, I think state-owned enterprises are um, an interesting way to protect a small economy within a global economy. And, and that's what the state bank has done and the state elevator has done traditionally. Obviously the danger um, here is that we would just be throwing money into, in, into industries that um, the rest of the world doesn't wanna buy those commodities. So we'd be forced to be the purchaser of last resort, which means we'd be forced to burn that stuff here and, and use it in North Dakota. So th the scenario would be, I guess, the state uh, buys the coal mines and then burns its own coal for its own electricity for the next 100, 200 years. Um, and I, I don't know what, you know, what's coming with carbon tax um, or carbon capture for that matter, but um, unlike the bank, which is kind of a neutral entity within a larger financial um, climate, oil and gas companies in within the world um, are not going to be good bets going forward. That's why the money is not coming into North Dakota. That's why the investors don't like North Dakota anymore is that um, the people that, uh, are paid to predict the future, say the future is going to be a little more carbon constrained than we are currently enjoying. So the carbon-based economies and carbon-based companies are gonna to have to change. And, uh, you know, North Dakota has a choice. They can go down with the ship, uh, you know, tie a, uh, an anchor to us and <laughs> let it sink. Um, or we can, you know, try to change on the fly. and. I think we know what we're trying to do this session, which would be to marry ourselves to oil and gas indefinitely. Uh, so with that, I'm gonna stop ranting a little bit. I wanted to say 
one thing to, for national politics purposes, we had talked previously when Biden won that, you know, there's a chance that this would be worse, uh, potentially worse than a second term of Trump because um, Biden throughout his career had been known to be the master of compromise <laughs> and bipartisanship. And uh, given what we know of Republicans, it looked like it could just be a, a two years of obstructionism or four years of obstructionism and nothing getting done. But I'd have to say uh, in the first couple of weeks of Biden's administration, he seems to have learned uh, a thing or two. And he also seems to be um, embodying, which is an interesting um, thing for when people get old, uh, sometimes they either um, you know, take up less and less space and just kind of get out of the way. But sometimes when people get old, they start to not give a fuck anymore. And they just do what they've wanted to do their entire lives. But now they've gotten so old that they don't care what people think about them. They just do it because they know it's right to do. And they kind of are become uninhibited. And it seems like Biden's going for number two. He's going, he's becoming more uh, uninhibited and just doing what he thinks is right. And uh, I'm, I'm surprised, but I'm, I'm liking it so far. So I want to give some kudos to, to Biden's administration so far. They've done a good job keeping the left at um, satisfied with some of the things they're doing, trying to get minimum wage through conciliation, the budget conciliation process. And um trying to get the, the stimulus through uh, without bipartisan support. Um, I think there's really good rhetorical ground safety for them to do that. Plus it makes a lot of political sense. So I wanna give some kudos to them because they're doing a good job, I think so far. With that, um, Ellie, how is your week go? We talked a little bit about the uh, NPL meeting, but otherwise, how's it been? Oh, it's a mixed bag. I'm always happy to release a column. Um, I... <laughs> have a lot to say and I like people reading it, you know? Um, and so I was uh, very happy to get my column out there, which was about House Bill um, 1119, which we've discussed previously, which is the bill that would um, require that ballot measures be printed in their entirety on ballots. Uh, summaries would not be possible anymore. Anyways, I'm always, you know, excited to push something out there, but I am struggling a little bit with uh, how much time I have to spend on social media scrubbing um, neo-Nazi and um, trans misogynist comments on my social media because anytime I make a post there's like these this combination of maybe Russians bots and Nazis that harass me um, and I I was made really uncomfortable by the fact that they got trans misogynistic which is basically misogyny hatred of women but applied to trans women in particular I, I was really disturbed that that's the direction it went, but it went that direction because I had been vocal against the um, transgender athlete ban. So I can't just let like trans misogynistic comments hang around on my stuff. Like I, I consider that really bad, like just not good allyship. And it, but it's, it's really emotionally exhausting because I wanted to be doing anything but that. I have absolutely no interest in being in social media all the time and scanning for hateful comments and deleting them. It's just my least favorite thing. And so pushing out my column has been a struggle for me because I just know it'll get those kinds of comments and I'll have to do that again. And I can't seem to figure out, I, Twitter's easy for me to figure out so I can get, I'll get there. I'll get to the point where I can post this on Twitter and um, sort of control abusive responses by controlling who can comment and stuff like that. But Facebook is always evolving and I get really confused. Like the, the settings and menus change all the time 
and they're not intuitive at all. I mean, it's just terrible user experience. Like, like I, it's just shocking how badly Facebook's designed. It is truly a, just a heap of garbage in, in, in its design. But anyways, I can't figure out how to do that on Facebook, uh, particularly with my page. And I just lost patience trying to figure it out. So I, I didn't get to push out the column like I normally would. But I reminded myself as there are a bunch of boomers who read it in print and, you know, like they're not getting it for me pushing it on social media. They're getting it because they're old school uh, paper copy people. And, and so they're still seeing it. And just to tell myself to chill out, I'm just sad when I can't push it out because that's really what I want to do. I want to get eyes on it. <sighs> so that's kind of, but anyways, I felt good about the final product. Um, I enjoyed, um, citing the testimony of the elections manager and secretary of state um, staff member who they testified against the bill, explained that it would make ballots multiple pages and that's just a nightmare. And they explained why. And I explained my statistical analyses on character count of uh, ballot measures language or quote unquote title and how that nudges people towards abstention and no votes. And I just felt like I put some, good learning out there. I think people maybe learn something. And so I feel good about that. Um, so it's, that's a mixed feeling. Another thing is the progressive women's world in North Dakota is just having a really weird implosion. I'm honestly not totally sure what's going on. It's very strange, but there's this Facebook group that a lot of us are in and some, you know, a good number of male allies as well. And it has so much potential and it's had some missteps, but essentially it was a really large hub of uh, moderate to progressive women who just talked about politics or anything, COVID, whatever, gave each other a laugh, were a source of relief, um, spread information about opportunities to engage in feminist politics, like all kinds of cool stuff. And it got kind of ugly because a woman wanted to know why she couldn't culturally appropriate uh, cornrows and stuff like that. And we were trying, you know, people tried to explain to her. I know, I know it's very hard for people to understand cultural appropriation. It is very nuanced and complicated. And I think a lot of well-meaning people have to say, you know what, I just don't get why I can't do this, but I understand that it's hurting your feelings, so I'm going to stop. A lot of people, that's the best that they can do because it's just so not the world they live in. Um, and some people they demand that it makes sense to them. Like they, they're just like, I demand that you make it make sense to me that I can't have cornrows or dreadlocks or whatever. And it, it's just not how it works. Like, you know, you have to learn about black people's experiences over time, over years, over decades of your life to start to glean any sort of sense of what it's like to be them. And to demand that you understand before you change your behavior and stop culturally appropriating, it's just like, it's not, it's just not good. It's not the direction we want to be going with this. And I joined the chorus of women trying to get white women to chill and listen and try to understand. <clears throat> and I also, things also got a little weird because a trans woman uh, happened to say the phrase or type rather the phrase Democrat party. Now, we, we do know that that's generally a term used by conservatives. Um, Democratic Party is the technically accurate term. 
And there is some research uh, like of the political psychology flavor that the distinction matters. What listeners hear Democrat Party as opposed to Democratic Party, they think of it as uh, worse, I guess. I, I can't remember. I haven't looked at the literature in a long time, but it's a thing. Anyway, so but it's not something that I'm exactly going to um, split hairs over uh, like a, a transgender woman friend about like it just seemed really petty. And basically the person was like, aha, you use Democrat instead of Democratic. It means you're hostile to the Democratic Party. And she was just kind of like, so what? Like, I mean, she just was unapologetic. She's like, what have they done for me lately? And, you know, it's the kind of thing where if a trans woman feels that way, like she feels that way for reasons. And, you know, it's not exactly appropriate to jump in and, I don't know, correct her or whatever. It just seemed like, oh, like, like we should be open to these thoughts and feelings. Um, you know, I, so I tried to then respond to that discussion by saying that, look, a lot of white women and a lot of cisgender women, they just don't understand why um, folks are further to the left of them or distrustful of the Democratic Party or both. But they have their reasons and their reasons come from lived experience. And I just tried to let people know that there may be differences of opinion in this group because of the lived experience. And we really need to be better and, and just more accepting. And that went well too. I mean, like my comments have been well-received. There was one lady who accused me of being passive aggressive with her, but I was the opposite. I was um, not aggressive at all, but very direct and just defended myself from that accusation. And the next thing I know, a couple of days later, because I, you know, I'm not on Facebook all the time, um, I realized a bunch of people got booted from the group. And like cool people, like honestly, if your women's group in North Dakota lacks certain people, it's not legit. So these super legit people are getting purged from the group. And I'm like, holy cow, that's crazy. And then I realized I was purged too. And <laughs> and so basically there's just it's just I was like, okay, cool. This is an all white, all white transit exclusive or exclusionary space now like I don't really get it it's really confusing and a lot of people seem to like the contributions I was trying to make like being like I'm a white woman who's had to struggle with my, me being problematic I'm just here to <laughs> tell other white women how to think about things and you know help them on their journey and just yeah I got booted for I don't even know I it just and anyway so it's this big scandal on um, in progressive women's circles on the internet today. And it's just also very strange. It feels a little suspicious, like uh, hacking or something. I don't mean it's not really paranoid. It just, it's just weird. And so anyways, this, this all went down very recently. So it's the thing spinning in my head right now. And thanks for listening. Well, yeah, that, thanks. that is quite the story. And so what I get out of that is that there's a new faction called the anti-woke white feminism. Is, would that be accurate? <laughs> I think I think it'll work. Um, it, it, it'll, it's good a good enough summary. And it's you know I know look I, I'm a white woman. I have made so many mistakes. You know I have my own private shame. Um, and so I just try to tell people like look like I've been there. You know it we are problematic. We need to work on ourselves and. It's so I'm so I'm not this complete a hole about it is what I'm trying to say. I'm not like I'm so much better than you. I'm like I am you. Um, and and a lot of women respond well to that, but some women they just they like 
I don't know, they want to build this fortress around themselves that the Democratic Party is just perfect. I, 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 that instinct, I don't understand at all, to be honest. That, that part's super weird to me, but whatever. Um, yeah, so yeah, that, yeah, Dustin, your, your phrase works fine. It, it, it's funny because, you know, it, it's kind of the your version of what I deal with in, in that different faction. I, I, maybe this is just part of the whole realignment process we're seeing that factions call themselves one thing, but their views do not actually match what they call themselves. And like I deal with all these people that call themselves conservative, but they're not conservative. I mean, the, the, it, it, it goes back to my my phrase that I always use, like whenever, uh, you know, a, a Trumper would say, well, he's good on trade. I'm like, you realize that his, that, that his view on trade was the 1951 version of the democratic party. Right. <laughs> you know, yep. they, were, they were anti-trade and you know, on the, tr at the later end of the Truman years and under Eisenhower, they were very anti-trade. Um, and they had taken that from the, uh, who was it? They, they, that was when a faction of the, quote, progressive Republicans had moved over to the Democrats prior to the Dixiecrats moving from the Democrats to the Republicans. Um, Robert Taft, I believe, is, is that faction. And um, like, I think he's either the son or grandson to William Howard Taft. But, um, you know, the, the, these, these groups and factions, they, they have not been paying attention long enough and do not know the history of any of this to understand what the actual philosophies that they claim to hold mean. You know, it, it, they, they take a label and because somebody else calls themselves that and they believe the same thing that they think that label applies to it. And it becomes this whole thing where no, you, you, the words you are using don't have anything to do with what you believe. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting how the word uh, language is used to either appropriate or, um, uh, you know, confuse the, their own believers in the process. So it, it, either it's intentionally or it's it's a way to appropriate something you want to you want to um, uh, either, I guess, make it dissolve from the scene or, or just uh, use for your own purposes. And so I, I got to come out and say that I do call the Democratic Party Democrats and the Democrat Party quite often. Ellie, I, I didn't realize it was a it well, was a term of derision. There's a difference between there's a difference between Democrats as just a plural noun because I think that that is something a lot of people use pretty loosely. But the Democrat Party versus the Democratic Party that's that's apparently the big that, distinction there. Yes, well. And, and that I, goes that that is an issue that Democrats had with Rush Limbaugh, you know, 15 years ago. He, I believe, he is the one that that uh, created that as a, a derogatory. <laughs> and and actually, if you go back uh, far enough, I, I believe that it is associated with the Dixiecrat thing. So if you were Calling a Democrat a Democrat was kind of like calling them a Dixiecrat back in the day, and there, there's this whole whole thing. And it doesn't, you know. I, I think that people do it. Number one, they don't know the difference, and and then there, I think that there is. So that that's the anti-intellectual 
faction that use it. I think there's also an intellectual faction that uses it to uh, show that the Democratic Party is not really very democratic anymore. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, all of that is true and interesting, and there's lots of, and then there's plenty of people on both sides of the aisle, which you kind of hinted at, but I just want to say explicitly, on both sides of the aisle who use the term willy-nilly without any intention whatsoever. So right. there, are, there are, you know, folks on the left who say that too, and they're just, it just doesn't mean anything to them. Um, I think all of that, but it does have all that meaning in history that all really checks out for me. But also it's like at some point I'm like, that's interesting. Moving on. Like, it's just not something that I'm going to fight with someone about it. it and, and it really flirts with like grammar Nazi type of stuff. Like, it's just mm -hmm. it's just a waste of time to to correct people. Like maybe there, there's a time and a place to talk about that. Like, I think it's and I personally choose to say Democratic for these reasons. But and it just it seems to me like if we have all these purity tests placed on women who belong to marginalized groups, we'll never have them in our groups. Like, it's just so ridiculous to me that we care about this grammatical issue more than we care about being a welcoming space for trans women. Like, that's just bonkers based on the actual ostensible, like, priorities right. of the group. Right. Well, I mean, we sh it should be the content of their character, really, and not the words they're using in, in the moment. And it's hard to make, it's hard to, when you're online, it's hard to, to gauge someone's character, but it's pretty easy to gauge their grammar. So it, it's just part of that medium um, that exaggerates certain parts of, of, of communication styles. Um, I, I would like to talk a little bit more about language because I think part of what the oil, gas, and coal industry is doing is using language um, in a way to, uh, we can call it a form of greenwashing, but I think that it's not only that they're trying to convince outsiders that we're actually clean and sustainable. I think they're trying to convince themselves that they uh, are morally upstanding people within the, a, a community. Because uh, I think they feel very attacked. So I, I want to go a little bit deeper into what, what I consider to be their kind of multi-pronged plan this session. Because, uh, well, I haven't heard it uh, articulated anywhere, and, uh, and it, it would be nice if we could articulate it here and, um, and maybe gather some support to counteract some of this, because I don't think the legislature, um, to the extent that they're aware, I don't think they either care or um, I'm, I'm uncertain how, how much they are willing to go along with it at this point. So with that, um, Let's get into it a little bit deeper. So we talked last couple last weeks ago about um, 1452, the Clean Sustainable Energy Authority. Um, there'll be a commission underneath the Industrial Commission, dole out money for clean and sustainable energy projects. So innovative solutions to our energy um, problems um, to make it more clean and more sustainable. Um, the subtext is that that's to create uh, carbon capture and other ways to make oil and gas and coal cleaner and easier on the environment. So to fund, to fund the research and development that those industries don't want to fund or can't fund because they don't have any investors. Uh, it started at 25 million, it could go as high as 200 million after the sessions through um, from what I've been hearing from Empower Commission meeting members. Now, 
that's but one of five um, prong uh, bill attack that they have this session going on. So there's a, another one. I'm just going to run through these real quick and then kind of kick off the discussion so we know what's kind of going on. There is the one that Dustin talked about, the 2291. This is the ESG investment one. This is a way for them to make their money um, talk on the on the open market, uh, and uh, and to potentially discriminate against vendors that they believe that uh, are not supporting their industry. So the example they gave in the meeting was North Face. North Face is a apparel company, and apparently North Face doesn't uh, want to license their outerwear to any oil and gas companies because they don't want to be associated with that industry. They want to be associated with like outdoor doorsy stuff like the mountains and cool streams and snow and stuff like that. They don't want oil and gas people wearing their stuff. Uh, so they won't license it. They won't let them wear it. And so this really irks uh, lots of people. And so they want a way to fight back. And that's what they think 2291 is a way for them to fight back with their money. There's another one of uh, 1380. This would create an ongoing stream from the legacy earnings funds uh, to various uh, parts of the government uh, and uh, various entities within the government. One of them would be the Clean Sustainable Energy Authority. So 1380 would, continue, would create a, a continuing appropriation for that authority's um, fund. So if both of those went through, you could see you know, hundreds of millions of dollars coming out of the legacy earnings every year to go into the Clean, energy, um, Clean Sustainable Energy Authority Fund. So it could be potentially, you know, a huge amount of research and development dollars leaving our legacy funds to go to a private industry to help them remain profitable in the short term. And North Dakota would see none of that money back except indirectly through potentially taxes. There's another one, um, 1245. This is another one that directs how legacy um, um, investment earnings can be um, categorized and, and further invested. I don't have the details on this one, but I know that's one that the, the Empower Commission is targeting and as a must pass for their, for their plan. And then there's another one that's uh, tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. They're having the committee hearing. It's 2217. This is the oil and gas royalties lease uh, bill. And this is another one where I don't quite understand the connection to what um, the Empower Commission and oil and gas and, and coal is trying to accomplish. And I must admit that I, I read all these bills before I understood that they are part of a multi-pronged plan. And from reading each bill separately, I don't know whether this is intentional or not, but when you read them separately, it's hard to understand the intent behind them necessarily because they're written in languages that, that kind of shield their purpose, uh, especially the Clean Sustainable Energy Authority. Uh, it's written in a way where it doesn't say anything about clean uh, coal. Uh, carbon capture, anything like that. You really have to read between the lines and be like, okay, well, who's going to be, you know, who's who's on the board? Okay, oh, well, it's all oil and gas. Okay, that's a hint. And uh, and then uh, who's pushing for it? Oh, it's oil and gas companies. Hmm, that's a hint. And then you can start to uncover the the actual purpose. But um, so all these bills seem, you know, they seem like little tweaks here or there. But from what I can understand, they're part of a multi-pronged strategy to to protect the state um, in the world economy. Um, that's continually going away from um, fossil fuel investments. So getting back to, uh, and I'll open it up here, uh, but I just wanted to mention this. North Dakota is kind of a third world economy within the global economy. And 
historically has been extracted upon and exploited upon by people with more money. And uh, so we can take all the wealth we have naturally in North Dakota and it's, it's taken somewhere else and maximized and exploited somewhere else. That's been our history. And as long as um, I guess the oil and gas tax dollars kept rolling in, we were fine with that. Um, it seems like now that we've got to the end of that rainbow, we're not so fine with it anymore. But instead of attacking the capitalistic structure that created that exploitation and extractive industries, instead of attacking the model directly, I think we're just we're trying to double down on it in a, in a strange way where we're trying to use the tools of the markets to create this enclave where we can protect ourselves. And uh, I just think that's really backwards. There are ways to protect North Dakota within the global economy that we're not talking about. So, you know, we could put all our money in Bitcoin. <laughs> Bitcoin's very agnostic. Bitcoin actually uh, creates excess electricity um, needs. So we could put all of our money in Bitcoin and then we could create a bunch of state-owned Bitcoin mining nodes in North Dakota. There you go. Yeah, and then we're, we're fine, we're safe, no matter what happens with the global economy. Um, and then Don't the second thing- ideas. We, <laughs> the second thing we could do <laughs> is we could create our own currency. We're, we we create a North Dakota cryptocurrency, which we keep, the, you know, it basically, and say uh, no. that it's run by the North Dakota government and put all of our tax dollars and tax incentives within the cryptocurrency. And that we kind of keep, the, keep that currency within North Dakota's economy. And you could only spend it within the borders of North Dakota. And that would also be a way to protect us within a global economy. Now, I know there is some case law uh, that says that you can't, that, um, you can't have a currency um, that competes with the, the sovereign currency, the fiat currency of the US dollar which you know, back before uh, we centralized our banking around the Civil War time, there were a lot of competing currencies within America um, put out by big banks uh, throughout the, you know, regionally big banks throughout the country. And part of funding the, the Civil War involved nationalizing the banking system so we have enough money to fight that war. And so after that, all these little currencies around the country went away and we just had one fiat currency, which uh, case law was built up to say that that's, you couldn't ever have a, a competing currency with the government as a state government or some other entity because um, part of what makes the federal government the federal government is they get to make the money rules. However, with some of the recent Supreme Court cases that has, have um, basically said that money is equal to speech there is now, I think, a constitutional argument that state governments can create their own currency. And so the second way would be to create a North Dakota currency and help fund some of this oil and gas development uh, that way. And then it would keep the, the money in North Dakota's economy. It can never leave North Dakota's economy. We could run our state government off this currency. And uh, no matter what happened at the global scale we'd always be safe because we'd have our own currency so those are my two ideas you know i i understand we're kind of this little outpost trying to make it in the in the global economy and that's it's a big problem i think long term but i don't like our solution currently so with that i want to open it up um and you guys can take it anywhere you want it's kind of a, a huge issue you know i was on this i was on the the last empower commission meeting and the guy from the commerce department characterized the ES, ESG as a concept, as the biggest challenge of our lifetime as North Dakotans. 
which is laughable because <laughs> uh, that's not the biggest challenge of our lifetimes. That would be climate change. I think we're all, we're all pretty, uh, are, are the next pandemic maybe, uh, but not ESG as a concept. But I think a lot of people that are very um, tuned into the economics of fossil fuels are very, very frightened. I saw a lot of fear and paranoia in that meeting as well. So whether it is a big issue or not, a lot of um, people that have a lot of power are scared about it. So I think it'd be awesome if we had a coordinated counter narrative to this idea of what to do about ESG. And it would be great if we could articulate um, a different path forward. So with that, I wanna just hear, hear some potential ideas from the group. So, so when you refer to the guy who was saying that was the biggest challenge, uh, I think that he means in that North Dakota's economy is so concentrated and reliant upon the non-ESG stuff that it becomes the biggest challenge. And, you know, if you looked at, I mean, if you did a, a poll of the legislature, you know, they'd probably come out 80, no, maybe 72% in favor of global warming. Uh, because it's an, a good thing for North Dakota uh, as far <laughs> as extending the growing season and stuff like that. And this is how they really think. I mean, so if there was a client, there was a pro, there was a, a house resolution to support climate change. You think we'd get 72%? It would passage? pass for sure. 72% <laughs> on a, a, at the high end, but I would guarantee it would pass. You're probably right. Yeah, especially the house. So in the House, it would get 72%. In the Senate, it might get like 56%. That would be my guess. <laughs> and so, so and I, I, uh, I sent an email to the, the guy that you're referring to. We were playing phone tag on Friday. Uh, I want to chat with him and see if he's uh, where he's at. Because I, I, I don't, you know, listening to what he said on the, the call, and what he said in the committee hearing, I can tell that he's trying to thread a needle right. in that he is a state employee, which means that he is supposed to be taking guidance from the governor, either directly or indirectly. But the people on the Empower Commission are private uh, interests in the, in the uh, coal and oil business. And... So he's got to balance those two stakeholder groups and not, I can tell that he's, he seems to have an internal struggle with what he wants to say and what he has to say. Yeah. And, and so I, I want to touch base with him and see if, if that's accurate and what I can do about that, because I think that it's, in my view, somehow or another, and I don't know exactly how this has happened, but the, conservative the traditional conservative free market message and the environmentalist message are now overlapping 85 percent and that's a new phenomenon in and of itself right and and so you know i'm trying to figure out how to make that work um and i think that the challenge they know that it's a challenge i mean they, they know that they either have to invest this money into propping up coal or they have to invested into propping up green and you know if if you took it that to the legislature and said what would you rather do uh they're gonna go with coal every day of the week yeah well i think that that's that's, that's a false choice i think the the assumption is and 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 then that person said this explicitly in the meeting the 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 assumption is that 
government exists to support private business. And I don't think it does. I think it, it is right now, it's existing to support private business, but that's not its traditional, nor I would say moral function, it's to support everyone. So obviously the argument they make is that supporting private business does support everyone indirectly in the trickling down of, of resources um, as people get jobs, because there's economic development. I don't think the data supports that conclusion. And I don't, I think we need to fight this idea that North Dakota's government exists to support private industry. And not only does it exist to support private industry, it exists to support very specific private industries, not even just all private industry, but very specific ones. And I think that's a very dangerous path to go down that we need to actually talk about that assumption. Because you're right, Dustin, it is a question of if not coal and oil, then what? What do we do as a government? And uh, I don't think they've even, you know, I don't think they're co contemplating the other possibility. Um, you, you, you said it, it was green. I would say it shouldn't be green versus oil. It should, it should be none of the above. It should be directly to the people of North Dakota. So the legacy fund should have a, uh, whatever you use legacy funds for, it should affect all people or go directly to people as much as possible whether that's schools or property tax relief or something that mm -hmm. can be spread across the entire population in a very egalitarian fashion that everyone benefits from it. Instead of like, we got to make a very small minority of private businesses um, enriched by this legacy fund. That seems, you know, that's what we're doing, but I don't, I, I would say that's where we fight against it. That's, that's, the, that's the assumption we try to undermine is that, is that really what government is here to do? Yeah, and I, I agree 100% that that they're going the wrong direction. And and this all goes back, I mean, we've got 20, 20 years of quote unquote economic development programs. The state has probably spent, oh, I'd say $300 million in 20 years is probably a low number uh, to quote, develop the economy. And, but no one's ever defined what a, developed economy looks like for North Dakota. And, <laughs> and now we've got another bill that we're not only going to develop the economy, we're going to spend another hundred, hundreds of millions of dollars to diversify the economy. <laughs> because somehow the development of the economy wasn't diversified enough. And now we got to double our programs. And, and you know, it, it just, it's so, it, it's so much against you know, going back to what people say they are versus what they actually do. Um, right. It's so much against traditional conservative thought. I mean, it, it, this is where the old line, uh, Republicans are spending money like drunken Democrats comes into play. And, uh, th th but they think that because they're helping their friends, they, they've gotten, I suppose this is just more of the tribalism uh, on steroids and with money. Um, that they, they believe that they've been beaten on the idea that government should not be involved in the economy. And so now their focus is going to be making sure that the things they like get that involvement um, rather than the things that they don't like. That, that's really how this is, has manifested. Right. Well, I mean, the, the extent of the paranoia in that last meeting um, was making 
you know, it was clouding, I think what you're, what you're saying was clouding what they would consider to be their principles um, of how they, their political principles for sure, which would be, you know, a free enterprise, free economy, but they're advocating a centrally planned economy. Mm -hmm. And the central plan was coming from them. And they're like, this is what we, this is what the, you know, this is where the money should go. And this is, we, we need to plan this out. This is our plan. So yeah, it's, um, you know, fear uh, and paranoia could do a lot of things to your principles if you don't hold them very closely or let them guide you. And I think what's happening is they're, they have an existential threat facing them. And uh, with that kind of trouble on the horizon, they're we're willing to embrace a little communism mm -hmm. and have been, I guess, traditionally for the last 20 years, as you described. Yeah, it, it's uh, Republican communism, good, Democratic communism, bad. That, that's where they're at. Jim, I saw you pop in there a little, a little bit ago. Well, there were many, many elements that have come up and just to illustrate to us how far we are from our ideals. Um, I think in North Dakota, we really do have a ideal that is help the neighbors. Um, like you were saying, Ryan, you know, the legacy fund shouldn't go to corp a specific small group of corporations and private individuals that should go to the people of North Dakota. And when you said that to me, it just sounded so weird. Like what? That's not the government's job to do things for people. It's to get it to the right corporations. And and then I had to check myself and say, well, wait a minute, this is how wrong our government has been. And I, I recall the early uh, hundred years of our, of uh, American history, most of our, legislation was about it was heavily anti-corporate and about limiting the corporate powers um and it really did fight for the people non-stop and that switched around the turn of the uh 20th century you know 120 years ago and um we turned into a very private um and then it became this different battle so it, it's weird having this conversation and all when when you do talk about doing things for the people it does sound crazy and that just reminds me that if you actually speak about truth and, and decent, wonderful things in places that in societies that have gone awry, you will sound crazy. And I was thinking back of Ellie's comments on her social media, you know, and people aren't going to listen. They don't go to social media, have their opinions changed. They go there to have them reinforced. People aren't going to want to hear the truth. If you try to speak facts and truth in a legislative hearing, they're going to laugh at you. If those facts show, um, you know, like they, they point to the facts that their alliances and where they are shuffling money to other private corporations or whoever's influencing them is not good and, and not actually, not even an, an economically smart or viable or sustainable way to do things. There's, you're going to be laughed at. Um, and uh, it goes back to... Um, really reconsidering how can we have change, cultural change, social change in this sort of an atmosphere where if you do speak up, it sounds crazy because we're so surrounded by um, misinformation and, um, and, and a system that is not following our values as North Dakotans. So it, it, there's a lot, there's a lot there. 
I, I thought of also the, the term petro masculinity, which is <laughs> which is a term that I saw. In, Whoa, um, that's awesome. Yeah, pet, petro masculinity, and um, there is a there's an Alexander Kaufman article about petro masculinity, and and that's that's kind of what's running the game. You know, it says fossil fuel producers rely heavily on debt and generous government subsidies. Um, but it also turns into this cultural issue where the, the logic is, you know, creating this new term. And, uh, you know, it, it says, um, this, this culture is, is really masking and this, this underlying poor economics. And they say, you know, the reality of the fossil fuel producers right now rely heavily on debt and subsidies so about 50 percent of all new drilling in the u.s would be unprofitable without subsidies um and that's according to a 2017 peer review studied and uh, so they're relying on these very cheap loans by wall street investors boosted boosted by um all kinds of state subsidies and then now what happens when the out-of-state investors don't want to subsidize this. So now there is a, 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 deep, a deep fear that you mentioned. And, um, and that fear attacks right to our core of, of who we are. Wait, I thought to be a man is, you know, to burn as much fossil fuels as you can, you know, and, and this is just, it's, we are at a deep identity crisis right now. And these hearings are intense and they're highly illogical. And I, I don't know where we go from here. I got a question about the petromasculinity. Is this uh, referring to the guys that screw around with their emissions on their pickup so that they can blow smoke? <laughs> because I would agree with that. But if, if it is related guys. to the guys who have uh, worked on engines and uh, cleaned their hands with diesel fuel because that's the only way to get the grease off, then that's a separate story because that would include me. <laughs> Well, it's interesting. Uh, that's an interesting frame, uh, Jim, because I think a lot of that is in there, uh, in in what's driving these conversations, because it is a, a a threat to their identity, not only the identity of the business person or the lobbyist that um, makes their money and and structures their life around defending these industries, but the people that run those companies and the people in those companies, um, the workforce. It is a huge, obviously, we've set up the system where our economic function is a proxy for our, our, our very identity. And so to, to come at the industry is to come at someone's identity. And, you know, it's such a personal thing. You can't really give them an alternative identity. You know, you can't really paint a picture. We'll say, well, you'll be fine. You'll adapt. Um, you can't really do that for an individual person. They have to come to that conclusion themselves. Um, or, you know, the circumstances have to be such that they're allowed the opportunity to come to the conclusion themselves. And so the hearings, <clears throat> they do get rather heated. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just looking through my notes from that Empower Commission meeting. One of the guys, um, I forget who he was representative, but he said, we're the victim here. <laughs> they, 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 there's a, you know, they're, they're being persecuted really by, by private capital. Um, the way that the, the flight has happened. And it's really only the last year that I could see 2020 is really when it started, when capital capital flight from fossil fuel to renewable energy sources really just took off. And, and you know, it's 
markets are pseudo illogical sometimes it's just when one when it's when a slide starts happening when people when fear starts to grow uh, you know everyone kind of it kind of just it's contagious and so it, maybe 25 percent of the investors might have started the movement and then everyone else was like oh yep well climate change is here and we and uh, okay <laughs> and then it just it, you know in, this, in one year everything changed almost and so yeah this is a huge identity crisis how do you present a, car, a counter narrative to the identity crisis that doesn't um, pick away at the at the core of the of these individuals and these um, businesses so that they can I wouldn't even say accept it but just tone down the rhetoric of um, you know we're the victim here how can you be the victim when you've been winning for the last 40 years you're on a 40-year winning streak how, how, how are you the victim now the victim today that's preposterous but you know, that's what they're thinking right now. Uh, it's so an entitlement mentality. They, they have become, and that was Jason Borer with the Lignite Energy Council that said that, um, they have become the, the welfare entitlement crowd. And so they want to be propped up. They want their, their first of the month check. That's what they want. And, um, you know, they were talking about the, the CCUS, which is the carbon capture utilization stuff, and how they need to build a, a, the pipeline grid out to the oil fields. So to me, that's why they need hundreds of millions of dollars, because right. you know, they're going to build pipelines from the coal plants out to the oil fields so that they can pump the, the CO2 into the oil wells and, and, and uh, you know, augment the production that is already being done by the frack water business. And, uh, and so the, you know, the problem to that, from my perspective is the state created in 2011, the Western area water supply, which supplies frack water to the oil industry. The state has spent $400 million on this. Uh, they, they still have almost $200 million in debt at the bank of North Dakota because they, they thought that they could build this system to sell frack water, the oil business, and then use the profits to provide uh, water supply to, you know, regular houses and, and city, little towns and, and farms that never had good, clean water outside of their own wells. And so now we're going to utilize the legacy fund to create another state-owned transmission system for the CO2 because there's no market for it. Even if, even if they can capture it, uh, there's no market for it. So the state's got to pay for capturing it, pay for the transmission. And then probably even I could see a situation where the state's going to have to pay the oil companies to figure out how to use it. <laughs> you know, so everything along the line in order to get to this green, you know, where they, they're, they're recycling the CO2 for oil, everything is going to have to be paid for. Plus you're going to have the state owning the coal facilities. Like, they're going to blow the entire legacy fund, like principal and everything. This is going to be like a $6 billion, 20 year boondoggle. And it's going to make those of us who, who said that, you know, back in 2006, you know, the Democrats wanted to utilize some of the oil money to build a oil refinery. And 
Republicans said no. It only had a little bit of reasonable uh, discussion because Ed Schaefer came out and said, you know, we should talk about that. It's not a bad idea if we can do it right. And, and in retrospect, it's exactly what we should have done because yep. we would have made a lot more profit off of the, the, uh, the refined product than off the oil. It would have helped buffer the, uh, the, the, the cost of, of transportation of the oil uh, instead of paying, instead of the oil companies losing the transportation costs, they would have made that back up in the fact that the refinery was right here. And then still got to figure out how to get, you know, move the, the refined product, but you're, you're going to, you're going to have the value added portion there, but like they, they, they would rather just, you know, find new ways to waste money. And, and I mean, it, it really is they've become everything that they used to hate. They've become the welfare queens. Well, Ellie, I know you have a personal um, component to this issue uh, that you texted yeah. us about. Would you be willing to talk a little bit about, um, I guess, what it looks like uh, for, on the opposite end of the industry, for, not from the, the executives and the lobbyists, but from someone that's actually working on the ground? Yeah, I've been mulling that over uh, while listening to you guys. And um, gosh, it is different in some ways. Um, I, it's almost like a very interesting microcosm to demonstrate how political rhetoric and ideology and stuff um, has sort of, there's the elite discourse and there's the mass public. And um, the mass public does get cues from the elite um, and while the mass public certainly has, there are, there is sort of like natural ideology in the mass public. Um, some people really use the elite discourse to decide what they think. And in fossil fuel industries, it seems to me to be kind of parallel. There's the ordinary worker um, who's kind of like the mass public of the situation. And then there's the more executive folks like you're talking about, the elite, so to speak. And just like in any populace, there's obviously members of the mass public who do not believe automatically whatever the elites of fossil fuel industry are telling them. And then there are people who do. And then there are people who aren't sure what to think of things. And they're just sort of confused with all the inconsistent information that they're receiving. I've spent time thinking a lot about how do you talk to energy workers? I'm much more interested, or I guess maybe the endeavors I've engaged in to date have found it much more relevant to, you know, I find it more relevant to think about engaging with ordinary workers and not worrying about the executives so much, just because I'm interested in bringing ordinary people into the political process and helping them govern themselves. And, um, you know, that kind of a person, like that's my husband, for example. So um, he used to build, ro build roads in Western North Dakota for oil companies. And then in more recent years, he um, did reclamation for a coal company and he's currently laid off. Um, and he is just a person who does not believe everything he hears. You know, he, elite discourse does not determine everything he thinks about something. And he's a person who definitely reserves judgment. Um, so he'll, he'll prefer to stay in uncertain space mentally than find something to commit to when he really doesn't have the information. Um, and so he does find a lot of the uh, petromasculinity or whatever you would really consider the coal equivalent 
to be quite obnoxious. Um, it is just really annoying to be around. And while he can understand that, um, obviously, Demo some Democrats or some folks and or some folks on the left are very rude in their their attitude and rhetoric regarding fossil fuel workers. And there's there's something real there that um, a lot of the people who think this industry is going to go on and on and on forever are just fools. Like he, he sees that and he just doesn't. Anyway, so it's kind of like there are people who get laid off seasonally um, and there are people who work all year with this company, the more you know permanent folks. And um, it's interesting that it's a relief to not be one of the permanent folks and be around while all this paranoia and constant complaining is going to go on. I mean, Sometimes somebody just wants to go to work and do their job and not necessarily listen to people complaining about Biden all day, every day. So, um, but for me personally, I've thought a lot about how to talk to energy workers and I definitely think energy workers should be able to be proud of the work that they do that, um, you know, we didn't always have everything technologically figured out or, you know, are all a number of things, you know, we may have used non-ideal sources of energy at times, for economic reasons, for not understanding the environmental issues or any, any host of reasons. But there were people who needed their houses heated, who needed electricity and energy workers were there. And whether it was coal or another source, like energy workers were there and helped provide a really important service. And I think that some people just not need not to feel like their career was complete garbage. And the rhetoric that is suggestive that it is, is very hurtful to those people. And are they being a little fragile? Maybe, you know, maybe in some cases, yes. In some cases, no. Um, a lot of times there's just working class people who are just trying to, you know, do meaningful work and get a paycheck and serve their families, you know, basically just take care of the people in their lives. And to be portrayed as as workers like dirty or a part of something sinister is just really disheartening for them. And I, so I think that even just isolating fossil fuel workers and considering them their own thing, as opposed to just a broader category of energy workers, I, I think that's problematic. I mean, when people identify with coal rather than identifying with who brings heat and electricity into people's homes, that, I mean, and I know, elite rhetoric, so to speak, the executives of coal country, like made that a thing. Um, but it seems unfortunate because there are, you know, younger people who could, who could strive to change fields could stay energy workers, but they could learn a different technology or uh, but to build their skill set. Or, you know, in my husband's case, he's a heavy equipment operator. If there's heavy equipment involved in the technology, like he might be able to participate in it. You know, it doesn't have to be about a particular source of energy. I, I just think that we got to um, be respectful of energy workers, realize that they're just people taking care of their families and um, maybe could use some help transitioning to a line of work that has more longevity. Um, I haven't thought a whole lot about what the, you know, how to change the minds of executives, because I suppose that I'm particular, I, I suppose that I'm biased to think that they're not as changeable. Um, but to the extent that any ordinary workers have absorbed the petromasculinity or whatever, um, they're going to be harder to reach. So it's obviously much easier to reach someone who hasn't defined their identity with oil or coal or something rather than just as being a good worker and a provider. A guy who identifies as a worker and provider, like you can reach him just 
a lot more easily because like you're not questioning whether or not he's a good worker and a provider. Um, you're just saying that maybe Cole's going to get phased out. Um, so I think there is a real challenge in dealing with that kind of masculinity. And that's why I thought it was brilliant to hear of it because I, I just know of it as the uh, more the Cole version. So again, I don't know that petro masculinity is the right term to encompass all of it, but it has its own version in Cole and I've just heard a lot of stories about just this, just the really ridiculous conversations that go on sometimes among workers who really internalize the identity, you know, not as a good worker or even energy worker, but just like, you know, they are oil field guy or they are coal guy. It's just, you can't really get through to them once they've really hardened in that identity. Yeah, I think that's a, a discussion we'll have to continue to think about, uh, Ellie. I don't know if we have any answers today, but yeah, the the questions of identity in, in the larger sense are are the the most important ones. <clears throat> I know I struggle with the idea of, you know, um, I'm definitely sympathetic to having your life disrupted and your career um, uprooted um, by something outside of your control. So my my inclination always is to provide support, um, whether that's state support. Um, policy support to transition these positions, these uh, populations to um, other lines of work. At the same time, I know that there are other parts of the economy that no one cares about. They get disrupted all the time and uh, we just kind of shrug and expect those people to uh, figure it out. Uh, you know, whether it's the newspaper industry or the retail industry, um, we don't, extend the same amount of grace to, to other industries as we do to oil oil and gas and, and coal workers um, because they have um, such an effective lobbyist lobbying and um, political power at this point so i while i want to help everybody i, I struggle with whether um, we should especially help one um, class of uh, disrupted workers over another class of disrupted workers or if there isn't a better way to help everyone within the economy um, which you know it's pushes me towards universal basic income and other kind of direct um, support mechanisms that um, remove any bias or a special treatment for certain classes of, of uh, populations and just direct it to the people um, because of the system that we live in has an inherent inequality to it uh, and that's capitalism. But with that, I think we should transition right now ourselves to the our checkout thoughts um, it's about 15 minutes past our stopping point. Any checkout thoughts from the group? Well, we, we didn't get to the ag part, so I look forward to talking about that down the road. But um, as I was ha had to go to Minot um, yesterday with kids, um, driving back, we stopped in a number of these small towns like Underwood and, and Max and and the amount of empty houses was remarkable. And you see that, you know, this is dying. There are so many dying small towns around North Dakota. And, and I understand how so much of the, the fear of GRE coal station shutting down, you know, making even more dead towns. And, and the, feel, the feeling is real. The fear is real. And that, that's the real issue there. And so then it's it's like if we are going to continue on this North Dakota recent path of of propping up certain industries and keeping corporations going, um, well, there are two 
corporations or not corporations, but I guess um, occupations that are projected to skyrocket right now and are skyrocketing. And, and that's, that's the energy industry, the clean energy industry. It's battery storage. It's, it's, it's solar, it's wind. And uh, those three together, um, heck these, these electricians at the power plants and all the workers in, in, in oil and gas are perfect, um, on wind and in the solar field, we always need electricians and on any job we're at. And, um, they already get it and they're really well qualified. They're great at what they do. This could happen. You know, if, if they did want to support a, a super green center and put, you know, 50% of all money right now in the renewable industry is in going into battery storage, R and D for batteries, um, huge scale batteries. If we wanted to have some kind of a renewable visionary center to work on that battery market and to transition these folks towards green jobs, the, the federal money is there. And I also heard about an interesting program now that will help alleviate most of these big fears. They're talking federally about a debt relief fund for coal plants because they're scared to, you know, well, we can't close this coal plant. We still owe $30 million on it. We don't want to cut our losses. we got to keep burnt, you know, digging until we get that $30 million back. Um, and uh, there is a program that's being talked about to relieve that debt if you are going to um, transition to renewables. So I think these two could be game changers. North Dakota could change on a dime um, if we got our coal debt relief and if that money all went towards transitioning and guaranteeing that nobody will be lost a job, you will just be transitioned into a new job. That, so anyway, that's a pie-in-the-sky um, dream, which is very different than the dialogue that's happening, that's being happened or being had here in North Dakota. It is, and, and that, that almost sounds more like the utilizing the old uh, paying farmers not to farm as a way to, uh, to prop up uh, egg prices model. As, and, and so you're, you're paying them the transition into something new um, that, uh, that will replace rather than that will that will fade, you know gradually phase out rather than abruptly replace and, and leave people out in the cold. Yeah, that's that, CRP like model. that model just just as a as a member of a family who would imp or would be impacted by policy like this or who's thought about this like that's a model that seems like humane and potentially effective and. I'm almost kind of weirded out by how it doesn't get brought up very often. Who could bring it up and where would they bring it up is my question. Well, I could certainly write about it. I'd have to do a lot more homework, but my column could be one venue maybe. <laughs> But, well, I think, but then I think. Oh, go ahead, Jim. No, you, you go. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say I think part of uh, articulating a counter argument to what the oil and gas is trying to put forth this session, part of the the counter argument or an alternate vision for North Dakota's future would be those ideas. I think the venue is is in the refuting this path as 
you know, they're making it seem, you know, when they talk to legislators, they're saying that if we don't get these five bills passed this session, you know, North Dakota is going to return to the 80s economically. Everyone's going to leave the state. We're going to have no financing. We're going to we're going to have a huge depression in North Dakota. That's the rhetoric they're using. And so to articulate, you know, an alternate path that doesn't include the depression again, um, but actually is a way it's to transition smartly. I think that's part of the counter argument. You have to have, you know, you just can't say this is dumb. You got to say this is dumb and there's a better way. And here it is. So I think the, the venue is in these committee hearings to, to articulate a, a different path, you know, a different potential path and, and stop talking about this doom and gloom rhetoric that's coming out of oil and gas. And, you know, the legislators have a huge, uh, hard, difficult job that they do in 80 days and uh, they're not reading all the bills. They're listening to the people that they trust. And the people they trust are the people that show up every day at the Capitol. And, and so when someone tells you the, the, the sky is falling, but you got to pass this bill so we can keep the sky up, um, a lot of this is going to be pretty, pretty good rhetoric for them to, to glom onto and to talk, take back to their districts, unless we have a counter argument and a counter vision. And so I think, Jim, we're, as for now, it just starts with bringing it forth in the committee hearings in a, in a strategic way to be like, you know, these the, the things they're scared of are real. The solution they're pursuing is a corporate handout. Maybe we can do better kind of um, counter messaging. And that's a good, um, oh, the thing, a thing about egg, Jim, that I didn't bring up is that, so when, when they talk, when, when they're talking about ESG being the, the greatest challenge of our lifetime and as North Dakotans, it's not just oil and gas, they're glomming in egg, the egg sector at the same time, which I think is, a, it's try, they're doing something to try to increase the power of their argument. I don't, I don't think they're, there's uh, the analogy between oil and gas and egg is that they both are carbon intensive. So they'll be taxed to a certain extent or lose out on investment opportunities to a certain extent um, in those industries because of the carbon footprint. Um, but I don't think, I think that's where the analogy ends. I think they're just bringing it up as a, as a way to say, this is, you know, North Dakota is getting screwed by the world. Uh, and, and this is where, because our main two sectors are egg and energy and uh, ESG is going to take all those investment opportunities away for those sectors in North Dakota. Um, I think the egg, egg side is a different story though. It's a story of um, long time federal subsidies, um, manipulating the, the food prices um, for other purposes and propping up certain food um, sources uh, like ethanol and um, corn uh, in ways that are not, that weren't sustainable. And so now we're kind of getting to the head of that as well. We, uh, a very unsustainable subsidy program over 40, 60 years. And now we're at the end of it where all carbon, it turns out to be, we, we got too much carbon in, in the atmosphere. What are we gonna pick off? Yeah, you're gonna start picking off these commodities that, that we propped up with subsidies and, and stuff like ethanol uh, that turned out to be not the best use of resources. So there's the reckoning that's coming for that industry, but it's a different reckoning. It's not necessarily that um, it's an unsustainable model. It's very important um, to, to create food for the country. It's how we're, we're subsidizing it. That's the problem there. And, um, and the way we've used, you know, all the small farmers in North Dakota go into debt pretty regularly and are banking on an above average yield to pay off their debt every year. And so if the yield is not is only average and not above average, then they go a little further into debt. And this is the game they play every year. And this is the model that they're under. 
And so that squeezes out small farmers over and over and creates bigger and larger farms. Uh, who, you know, when, when there's a federal bailout, it's the corporate um, millionaire farms that get all those subsidies. When, when Trump uh, sent a bunch of money to farmers because he was screwing around with his trade war and, and commodity prices were falling and they couldn't sell their crops, all that money went to the huge farms, you know, billion dollar, it was like 40 billion went to corporate farmers over, over the Trump years and for, from his trade policy ramifications. And so the reckoning that's coming to egg isn't about carbon necessarily, it's about the subsidies and the way we've kind of incentivized a, a debt-based farming model um, and, and it, based on how much money you can get from the federal government to pay off your debt. So that's a different story, but they're trying to bring it in together and be like, it's all the same thing, ESG is gonna kill everything, uh, which is just so they can get their stuff passed. It's not actually true. The, the, the farm thing is a much bigger problem that no one's talking about at this point. Um, and it'll continue to be more corporate farming and more um, Monsanto-based seeds and <laughs> all the other stuff is for another call. Unfortunately, it gets too deep, but that's where that that's where I, where I was going to talk a little bit about egg. I just ran out of time. And then for my closing thought, um, I, I did testify in per person this week for a bill. Um, so it was an interesting experience. My first time um, speaking in front of a, a committee and uh, I, I did it uh, in person versus on the computer because I just thought um, if I was one of these old guys sitting up there and somebody came in on the TV screen and started telling me something, I probably would tune them out real quick. And uh, so I just decided to go in person because I didn't think I, I'm a nobody to them. And um, it's harder to ignore a, a nobody when they're in front of you versus when they're on a computer screen. So that I just went to testify and I testified neutrally uh, I thought it was the most strategic for that particular bill to testify neutrally. Uh, so, but what I learned in the process actually was interesting. Maybe we can talk about this in further calls, but I enjoyed the opportunity to potentially educate versus to try to persuade. And I actually, it's kind of freeing to, to just not try to change anybody's mind, but just to bring them information and to bring them um, a, you know, a quote unquote full picture. I don't know how objective we are able to be as humans, but to try to bring an objective viewpoints to the discussion. Um, what I saw from my particular committee is that the, the, even though I think they already made up their minds before I showed up what they're gonna do with their vote, uh, they were still curious. They were curious on certain points. And so it was an opportunity, a captive audience, an opportunity to educate. And so I think if I do it again, I will continue to testify as new in, in the neutral position, uh, because I think it's a good opportunity to communicate and to educate with our legislators uh, who are typically, you know, they're talking to the same lobbyists they've talked to for the last couple sessions. You know, they got their friends, the people that show up there every day, they got their ears, you know, the Ron Nesses of the world. You know, when they walk into a room, people start listening. And, uh, you know, that's the way it works. And so, I, you know, I'm, I think I've given up for this session on trying to persuade anybody on anything, but I, I would love to educate. And, and that's what you can do in the neutral position, uh, testifying neutrally. So I did enjoy that. And I, I would recommend taking that perspective because, um, you know, I, to just go in and have a rhetoric for or against something, it, it's kind of dirty in, in the sense that um, it kind of, takes a whole swath of communication away from you when you're just trying to persuade somebody. If you're trying to educate, you can almost go in any direction. You can have an analogies, you can use um, 
parables. There's lots of different ways to um, change a perspective in a neutral fashion that um, I was excited by the possibilities that as I was kind of writing my neutral testimony for that and, and, and de delivering it in person. Um, that said, I think Dustin, I did, um, I've watched your performance on, on camera uh, in, the, in the testimony in the committee and you're doing a really good job. I don't know if it's your giant microphone or uh, are your camera setup <laughs> or your sound quality, but you're, you're killing it. And I, I think part of it is that um, they know you so they they know that you've already built up the reputation and a relationship uh, with with members of those committees, and so when you pop in remotely, they're going to listen to you. Um, my concern with regular people is that I think they only have a very limited attention span for um, Zoom Zoom testimony, and so if you're not in the first couple in the queue, I think they tune you out. And um, from what I've you know experienced in the room and what I've seen via the video, um, is that. Uh, unless you have a, a reputation, um, your video testimony probably is not going to hit as well as it could in person. Yeah, I think that you're right. And, you know, I not only do they know me, I've got a reputation with them. So um, they, they, as you saw on, on um, a few of the bills, you know, they like to really uh, stick it to me and, and, and ask me where my money is coming from. And then this week on, on that 2291, Kurt Kroon wanted to just argue with me and like, I, I mean, I, if I was in person, I would have kept it going just to make a scene of it. Um, <laughs> but like, I just was like, there's no upside to arguing with him at this point. And so I was like, at his last comment that he wasn't asking me any questions. He was just making comments and, and, you know, trying to rile me up, I think. But uh, after the second one, I was like, okay, whatever. And I, I said, sure, <laughs> and, and, and didn't argue with him at all. And apparently, uh, the whole room thought that was hilarious. That I, I laughed when I saw it. I didn't, that, I didn't I hear gave the laugh up. track, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was told that there was some people in there that thought it was hilarious that I gave up on arguing because <laughs> well, people know that I'm, I'm an arguer. So if so I Dustin, give up, yeah. Um, are you planning to be remotely uh, remote testifying for most of the session or was it just um, kind of depends on the day and, and the, and the bill? Um, yeah. I mean, I did, I've been in person two days um, and that was the day of the mugshot bill. I did that in person. And then I had a few other that day that I just stuck around for a few hours because we were already there. And then um, I went in, what was the other one? Um, Shoot, I, I forget what the other one is that I went in for, but there was a few that day as well. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm mostly going to be remote, uh, you know, unless it is something maybe in the second half, once, once we get a better idea of what's going to you know, make it through at least one chamber, I'll, I'll go in more. Um, and it, because a lot of it comes down to, you know, I know which bills have a chance and which don't. Uh, I mean, I, I've kind of, my, my triage system is, um, you know, on my list, the, the, the bills that I know aren't going anywhere, either because of the content or the sponsors, I, I'm not even dealing with them. The ones that, you know, I want to at least be on the record one way or the other, I'll send in, you know, short written testimony with some PDFs printed off the internet or something as, as supporting documents, but that's about where I leave it. Then the next next tier in the triage is is 
actually videoing in. Um, and then if I show up in person, then it's like, okay, guys, you're going to listen now. <laughs> so so I, I'm, I'm trying to create a scenario where they realize that if I show up in person, it, it means that I'm serious and, um, you know, got to tell the kids what to do and, and uh, send them to their room. <laughs> I like it, Dustin. I like your, your tiered triage approach to, to testifying because I, I spoke to my mom. So my mom's been a lobbyist for 30 years. Um, actually, this is her 31st year in her position. And uh, her, her advice was like, she said, I, I can't zoom into anything. <laughs> she yeah. said, I got I to gotta be there and talk to these people or they're going to, they're going to, you know, she needed to be, she said, you got to be on top of them every day and see and show them your face. Yeah. And, and the more you're there, the more they um, start to listen to you. So she said, you got to be, I got to, she said, I got to be here every day, no matter what. And she, and she has just gotten her second um, shot, her second um, vaccination shot. So she should be, should be good to go. But yeah, she's like, you got to come in in person. You can't, no one's listening to the zoomers at all. Which I, I think she's a little a bit of a technophobe too. She doesn't want to set up a camera and all that other stuff. So that's part of it probably. But she said, you got to be there. Which I think uh, it was interesting to just contrast the previous session in this session as far as, well, there was basically no one there. It was very empty. It was nice to not have as many people there. And um, I don't know, Dustin, I went in the West door thinking that that was the door I was supposed to go in, but nope. it was locked. And then I knocked on the window and the security guard said, why are you here? And I said to testify. And he's like, okay, come in. Uh, but I didn't go through the, I didn't go through the metal detector. I didn't, I didn't get my temperature taken. I just kind of walked in, which I don't know, like from a security standpoint. Well, and that, assuming... that's how it's, that's how it was until 2017. Right. Um, and then they, they put the, the metal detector on the South door. Now they've done all the, the reconstruction of the South door with, you know, turning the tunnel into an entryway. And, um, uh, the funny thing is that that door uh, is locked. That's supposed to be just legislators and staff door. The north side door has always been staff only. The west door over in what's called the judicial wing yep. is unlocked, unguarded. Anybody <laughs> can walk in. And so, like, let's not give I, any ideas here, Dustin. I mean, they, they, uh, you know, I guess. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, yeah, they just stormed the Capitol like a month ago. And yeah. our Capitol is just like wide open. All right. I, mean, yeah. I basically just said, like, I'm here to testify. And he's like, oh, fine. Come in. You know, no, nothing. So, yeah, I was just like, OK, well, that was weird. I've always gone through the metal detector. That was the first time I hadn't except, yeah, obviously the the uh, east door wide open. That's and, and, and now that you bring it up, that is crazy that they've never secured that door. Yeah, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, and and you know, the reason that they shut down the tunnel and that actually got shut down back in as far as you could you, back in the 90s you could drive through that. I believe it yep. was after Oklahoma City that they they uh they closed that down. But but even that west door, you know, we always talked about if if someone wanted to drive a van in there, they could. And it, they could drive right underneath the the chamber and and it'd be bad. Um Yeah. I mean, and that's well known. Everybody in the building has talked about that for years. Yeah. My dad used to work in the insurance department. So he, he was a frequent complainer of that door and not only for the security reasons, but he said that the, the exhaust would waft up all into the building from that door 
because everyone mm-hmm. would leave their car running in the winter and it would just it would create a stream of exhaust <laughs> into uh <laughs> into the into basically the entire capital and um he he broke uh, capital rules to open his window because he he was tired of breathing exhaust he's very sensitive to the exhaust smell i guess because it's like the fifth floor but, of the but, but that was carbon capture wasn't it yeah it was some carbon capture you're right we're capturing <laughs> the carbon back in the 90s folks yeah. <laughs> that's how innovative we are in North Dakota. Well, I think that's a good spot to end unless we have any further checkout thoughts. Not for me. All right. Well, thanks for joining us this week. It's been the No Name Podcast. Enjoy your Super Bowl or or not. Have a great rest of your week. <laughs>